Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and go to the book of John, the Gospel of John, in chapter 12. If you're using one of the, the Bibles provided for you in the seats there, it's page 898. We're taking a, a two-week break from our James series uh, to talk about Palm Sunday and then uh, next week, of course, Easter. And then after that, we'll go back into James for two weeks and complete the study there. Uh, then we'll launch a new study uh, after that. Uh, but between finishing James and starting a new study, um, I think Mike is going to preach uh, one Sunday on the 26th of April, and I think uh, Wayne is going to preach the first week of May. Um, so we'll look forward to, to that. Different voices are, are good, so be good. John 12... If, if you try to uh, piece together the, the chronological timeline of the events of Jesus in his earthly ministry by reading the Gospels, um, it takes some work. It's, you can do it, and it's possible. Um, but when you look at the different accounts, some things appear in different orders in, the, in different Gospels. That's not necessarily contradictory. It's just a manner in which the way the... Individual apostles wrote their books. Um, they had different emphasis in mind, and so with when you come to John's, John is probably the easier one to get a timeline because he puts some some signature marks, some time signatures. Like in verse one of chapter twelve, it says six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Or in verse twelve, the next day the large crowd grew. So so we have some time signatures there, so we can kind of piece this together here to see what was happening here. Now the reason why I bring this up is because we can find what is of extraordinary importance by the amount of repetition or if all four Gospels include something because not all four Gospels always include the same information or same stories. But the information that we're coming to today, this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is what's been known as, uh, this is in all four Gospels. And so there, there's great emphasis here. The anointing uh, the, in the first part of chapter 12 of John here is also in all four of the Gospels. And so we see that there's some emphasis here that we really need to understand. We need to know what's going on here. And... It's important for us to understand the significance of this event by looking at all the background of what was happening leading up to this. So before we read the text here, let me just share with you some of the background that has, has happened. In John 11, we would read about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Now this event is if extraordinarily uh, of importance to understanding the reason why the crowds were even there to shout Hosanna. Because John records for us that it was the, 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 uh, the event of him, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead that made the, the crowds curious and want them to come. So in verse 56 of chapter 11, it says, They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? So they were wondering, is Jesus going to show up to this Passover feast that was coming up here? 
And then John records for us in verse 18 of chapter 12. He says, the reason why the crowds went to meet him, singing Hosanna and waving the palm branches, was that they'd heard he had done this sign. Well, what's the sign? The verse before. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And so we see that John is telling us here that the reason why these people were so uh, uh, amazed by Jesus and they were meeting Jesus uh, uh, as he entered the city was because of this miracle here of raising Lazarus from the dead. Now after this, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, then that's when plans were made to kill Jesus. In verse 53 of chapter 11 it says, so from that day on they made plans. Who's this? That's the high priest, chief priest. They were saying they made plans to put him to death. And so Eventually, eventually, they also wanted to put Lazarus to death as well. In verse 10 of chapter 12. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So this was an extraordinary, uh, just an extraordinary miracle that had just taken place here. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And that brought the crowds up to the frenzy that they were at in this, what we read about in this triumphal entry section here. So people were wondering if Jesus was going to show up. So they're thinking about him. They're anticipating him. In verse, uh, in the first part of chapter 12 there, uh, Mary anoints Jesus. And what's, in, what's important about this, there's, there's several things that are important about it, but one of the things that's important about it is that Judas then, it rebukes Mary for doing this. He says, he says you should have, why did we waste this ointment? Why did we waste this perfume on this man? We should have, we should have sold this and given money to the poor. Well, John makes it clear that he said this in verse 6 of chapter 12. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. And so Judas then rebukes Mary and rebukes the other people and says, look, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have spent this money and wasted this. We should have given it to the poor. Well, in the heart, he was looking as a waste, wasted opportunity for him to gain some money by stealing. Now, what's not recorded for us in, um, uh, or it is in a, in a shorter way in John 12, but if you read um, uh, other gospel accounts, you see the rebuke is actually a little bit stronger here. But Jesus then rebukes Judas here, verse 7. It says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, he was not saying, he was not saying that don't, care, don't worry about the poor at, at all. Uh, you know, we shouldn't do anything about poor people. What he was saying there is if you really have a burden to serve poor people, you're going to have plenty of opportunities to do this. But my time is near. I only am going to be here for a very short time left. If you read the other gospel accounts, you see that the rebuke goes a little bit deeper there. And what is not recorded here in John for us, but is recorded in other places, is that it's at this moment that when Judas got rebuked by Jesus, that he then goes out and seeks to betray um, uh, uh, Jesus. He goes out and probably because he was embarrassed, probably because he received the rebuke from Jesus, and he says it was a tipping point for him, obviously 
obviously he was not in full agreement of Jesus' ministry up until this point. But it was this tipping point of getting the, the rebuke from Jesus that he goes out and he seeks. If we read in, in uh, Matthew 26 or Mark 14, you'd see that he goes out and he looks for the opportunity to betray Jesus. So it wasn't like someone came up to him and, and gave him the idea. No, the, the gospel records, the gospels record very carefully for us that Judas then went out to seek to betray Jesus. And so it's after this, after Judas leaves to, rebuke, to, to betray Jesus, that the Last Supper takes place, and then G- Jesus gets ready to go into Jerusalem. So read with me, starting in verse 12 of John 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and when he raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they'd heard he'd done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Parenthetically, I'm explaining there the force of what the Pharisees said there. It was almost that they were arguing with each other and they were blaming each other. And they're they're debating back and forth with one another, saying that what you have tried to accomplish here is not being accomplished. And he says the whole world's going after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the rule of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
And this is the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. I told you that this scene that we have just read about here, this triumphal entry, was really the beginning of the last week of Jesus for his earthly ministry. It was here that the final plans that had been put into place before the foundations of the earth were culminating and coming together. It was in this moment where priorities began to fall into place. When we come to the end of something, then we realize it's at that moment a lot of times we begin to remember the significance of that. We look back and and we think of maybe things that we could have done better, things that we could have improved upon, or things that we should have appreciated more. But here, Jesus had no regrets at the end of his life. But we do see that this was really the beginning of the exit out of this world and in the process of casting the rule of this world out and lifting up himself, signifying what kind of death that he would have. So the question I want to raise this morning as we look through this text for this next few minutes is this. What was most important to Jesus as the end of his earthly life approached? When we look at this, we see some things that, that, that was very important to Jesus here. What were they? Three simple points this morning. Number one, fidelity to the scriptures. Fidelity to the scriptures. He wanted to be faithful to the scriptures. He wanted to make sure that the scriptures were fulfilled. He wanted to make sure that what the scripture said was followed through upon. And he did this in verse 14. First of all, we see that he came riding on a colt. And this was to fulfill uh, Zechariah 9.9. That quote there that's given in verse 14 is Zechariah 9.9. And it was the, the prophecy of how the king would come and, and how the Messiah would come. And so what Jesus was doing here is he was very carefully orchestrating the events of this last, light, this last week of his earthly life so that all the scripture would be fulfilled. In, in times past, as we've talked about this particular day, I've, I've taught that, that, the, um, that Jesus was very carefully orchestrating all the events, even down, I believe, to the cult being tied up there. If in other places, you'll remember that the Gospels record that, that when he told the disciples to go get the cult there, that he says, if anyone asks you, why are you taking this, say, the Lord has need of it, and he will bring it to you. I agree with some uh, biblical scholars that believe that Jesus had set this up ahead of time and that that was the password, so to speak. And so that it, when Jesus set this up ahead of time so that when people would go, uh, and he, he went to the, the owner of the cult and said, look, people are going to come and get this for me. And um, to make sure it's going to the right place, they're going to answer when you ask them, where are you taking this? The Lord has need of it. So Jesus was carefully orchestrating these events here. Because he wanted to fulfill all the scripture. Because he was faithful to the scriptures. And the chaos of the events could have been easy for him to go in his own plan, right? But he said he remained faithful to what the scriptures were teaching. He didn't come up with a different plan or a plan B. He was following through. But he was being faithful to the scriptures. The crowd shouting, Hosanna! 
was to fulfill the passage that we read just a few minutes ago in Psalm 118. Psalm 118.26. That passage was often referred to or understood to be the passage that would be, would be uh, 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 the song that would be sung as people were coming into Jerusalem for things like this. But they were, they were preaching to each other and they were saying and singing Hosanna and asking for the Messiah to come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the King of Israel. They added that on when Jesus came on the scene. And so it went from when people were coming to the Passover to people cheering for that they wanted the king to come to now in this moment saying the king had come. And the reason why that they were of the state of mind to believe that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, that this crowd, that they believed that here was because, according to verse 18, the miracle that he did in raising Lazarus. But again, the point we're making is that Jesus has been carefully orchestrating this to be faithful to the scriptures. So they would come, and so they would say this to him. And so he made the miracle of raising Lazarus to the dead much more significant than it even needed to become. You remember the story, don't you? Remember when he got word that, that the, uh, Lazarus was sick? He got word that he was sick and, and that he could have come and, and he could have come and healed him and restored him to health. But remember what Jesus did. He waited. He waited until Lazarus died to go to Bethany, to go to where he was. And remember, this was the, the complaint that Mary and Martha had, the sisters of Lazarus. They had the complaint. They said, if you would have come earlier, if you would have come earlier, you could have saved him. You see, all along, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and he was fulfilling Scripture after Scripture after Scripture because he wanted to be faithful to the Scriptures. Now, the application is obvious. We need to be faithful to the Scriptures. In the last week of Jesus' life, what consumed him was being faithful to the Scriptures and ensuring that all the prophecies were coming true regarding him. After he rose from the dead, remember when he was talking to the people on the road to Emmaus, what did he do? He talked with them. They didn't recognize him. He had hid his identity from them. They're walking. And they, they, they said, uh, uh, Jesus basically asked the question, hey, what's new? What's going on? And they're like, you've been living under a rock? Did Jesus, they, they killed Jesus. And at that point, Jesus began to take all of the scriptures and show them from the prophets, took all the scriptures and showed them how it all pointed to him. It pointed to the Messiah. He said it all fulfills. This is, this is all of what had to happen. So he was faithful to the scriptures here. If Jesus was this confident in the scriptures, I think it should engender confidence in the scriptures for ourselves. Do we really believe the Bible is true? When we read that God is good... Do we really believe that? We do most of the time, but there are moments where that is attacked. And it's usually because of a circumstance. Something that we're going through. A disappointment. Bad news. But Jesus was faithful to the scriptures all the way to the end. He had a fidelity unmatched by anyone else. And he is our example. So fulfilling the scripture was very important to him. All the scripture points to him, as I said. 
In the final days of his life, being true to the scriptures was important to him. In the chaos of hero worship or rejection or arrest or imprisonment or beatings, and in the cross that was coming, Jesus remained focused on being obedient to the scriptures. He would not be deterred. The highs of, or the lows of life did not deter him from being faithful to the word. So the highs and lows of our lives should not deter us from being faithful to the word. Jesus has given us the example here. Jesus is showing us what is important to him is that the scriptures would be fulfilled and that they would, that we'd be faithful to, that he would be faithful to them. And so for most of us, it's not a matter of knowing what the scriptures require of us. For most of you, you know what the scriptures demand of you, what they ask of you, what your responsibility is to them. It's more of a matter of being obedient to it. Now, we are master excuse makers, are we not? We are people who can come up with a thousand and one reasons why we do not have to be faithful to the scriptures. But we do. In Adult Discipleship Hour, we've been talking about work and, and uh, sharing the gospel and living out the gospel at work. been a good discussion. And sometimes I think we've get, we get caught up into, we, we talked about this a little bit this morning, between these, these two ditches of where we say, well, I'm there to work, I, I'm not there to uh, witness, and so I need to work hard, and I can't, I can't do witnessing on company time and, and things like that. And then the other hand is, um, you know, we, we look at, you know, being silent. And then the other hand is we, we bring up the illustration of uh, all the, you know, the example that one of us have come across at, time, at one time in a life or another of someone who is obnoxious with how they witness. And, and so we, we really have this, this, this two ends of the spectrum here. We have being obnoxious with our witnessing and we have being absolutely silent. If we were to chart that out there, though, and we'd say, okay, I don't want to be obnoxious, and I don't want to be silent, where are we at? I think most of us are closer to being silent than we are closer to being obnoxious. But fear of being obnoxious keeps us from progressing to where we need to be. The scriptures tell us in 1 Peter that people should ask us, a reason for the hope that is within us. How are they going to know to ask us anything if we're not living the gospel out? If we're living, if we, if we treat world events the exact same way that everyone else does, how are we going to be asked, well, how do you have hope in this? When life throws us a curveball that no one sees coming, how are people going to ask you of the hope that you have if you respond in the exact same way that everyone else responds to it who does not know Christ? You see, we need to live in such a way that, that people see that there's something different. Now, this is where people get really uncomfortable because a lot of times at this point of a sermon, then it moves into moralism and it moves into, you know, well, you just have to do this in order to gain favor with God or something like that. That's not what we're talking about. But what we are talking about is living a life as if God has really indeed changed you. So let's be faithful to the scriptures. Let's do what the Bible says. Let's tell people about Christ. And we can do that in, in a way that is kind and loving and gracious and respectful. But do people know of your Jesus? Do they know of him? They should. Be faithful to the scriptures. That's just one application. Of course, there are many other applications here. 
In the last week of Jesus' life here, he was very concerned about the scriptures being fulfilled and being faithful to what they said. And we should do the same. Number two, following the Father's plan. Following the Father's plan was extraordinarily important to Jesus. In this moment, he could have, or, or it would have been tempting for me or for you to divert from the plan. Because Jesus' purpose was to die. Verse 27 says, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. This is the reason why I came. This is the reason why I was born to a virgin. This is the reason why I was born in a manger. This is the reason why I came into such humility. This is the reason why I've lived for 30-some years on this, on this earth. And for the most part of that, in silence. And the most part of that, not really making a name for ourselves. Only in the last three or so years did I really begin to do things in this world in a way that was extraordinary. He said, this is the reason why I'm here. This is the reason why I've come is because... Because I was prepared by God in this plan to die. This is it. He says, so as much as in my humanity, Jesus is saying, my soul is troubled. And later on in the garden when he says that if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But what does he end up saying? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus, his whole purpose was to die. And he did not deviate from the purpose, from the plan that the Father had for him. Even when it got excruciating. And when he was mere hours away from death. He wanted to follow the Father's plan. I'm reminded in John 4 when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well. And... Uh, I come back to the story often because it's, it's very instructive to me. And, and I really want to, to live this way. Um, Jesus, he's tired. He sits down at the well. The disciples go into the city because the well's on the outskirts of the city. Jesus sits down. He's, he's really tired from walking so much. And uh, disciples go into the city. They're buying food for, for them to eat. In the process, while they're gone, a woman comes to draw water. Jesus strikes up a conversation with her, begins to witness to her. Tiredness was not an excuse for him not to bring the good news. And so he was, he was talking with this woman. And this conversation went back and forth. And, and maybe you're familiar with the story where she said, I perceive you're a prophet. And, and so this argument got going back and forth about difference of beliefs. And Jesus kept coming back. And, and, and basically at one moment then, when the disciples come back, and they're trying to like interrupt the conversation a little bit so that he can, he can eat because he's hungry. And, and so they're, they're saying, okay, now, now eat. Here's the food. We got it for you. Jesus responds in, in a way that is almost cryptic, but yet at the same time, it has intense clarity to it. He says, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. He says, what gives me sustenance, what gives me satisfaction, what gives me energy, what gives me my, my, my strength and my power, that is to do the will the Father sent me. See, Jesus is God. We understand that. 
But he showed us complete and perfect submission to the Father's plan here. And he says, I'm going to follow the Father's plan. This is what was important to him. The purpose was for him to die. But look at verse 24. It was to bear much fruit in the process of it. So he gives this illustration of a, of a grain of wheat that falls to the earth. And he says if it dies, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, um, it bears much fruit. So it goes into the earth, and then, and then there's the harvest that comes out of this. And he says that if I do this, I'm going to bring much fruit. And then he gives the illustration for us to consider. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it forever. When he says hates there, it's not the idea of, of you know, uh, what people ter- term, uh, you know, low self-esteem and things like that. What he's talking about is saying that, no, my, my sights are so set on, on eternity that I have, I have no real love for this life now. Because of what I long for in eternity. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. If, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus' death was going to bring much fruit. Jesus knew that, and that's why he was following the plan. So in this last few days of his earthly life, as he comes into the city with a bunch of fanfare and people shouting Hosanna and, and, and singing praises to him, and in another gospel we see that the Pharisees begin to rebuke and say, hey, shut them up. And he says, look, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks are going to cry out. And so in this moment where, where people are praising him, if it were me, I would want to deviate from the plan. If it were me, I would want to say, look, they've accepted me as king, and so I can do much great and much good by being king. Do I really have to die? Do I really have to continue to be rejected? So in the moment of this triumphal entry, there was this, this opportunity, if you will, to deviate from the Father's plan, and Jesus would have none of it. He would have none of it. He didn't let the adulations and the adoration of the crowd to deviate him or distract him at all. He says, I'm going to do the Father's plan. This is why I've come, verse 27. So again, the application for us is simple. What is God's plan for your life? Some of you are saying, well, that's a good question. I don't know. Well, actually, I think most of us know more about God's plan for our lives than we, than we think about. We know that God, God's will for us is our sanctification. He makes it very clear. Paul wrote that. So we need to be growing closer to Christ. We know that gathering together like this is part of God's plan. We know that praying for one another and with one another and bearing one another's burdens and loving one another and edifying one another and exalting one another and being patient with one another. We know all that's part of God's plan. Are we doing that? Are we doing that to the end? None of us know how long we have. Are we doing this to the end? Jesus knew his time was short. And he said, I'm going to follow, follow the Father's plan until the end. Now the context where those become the hardest, oftentimes with the people that we love the most. It's hard to be patient with our children. It's hard to be patient with our spouse. It's hard to be patient with our co-workers and our boss. It's hard to seek their interest and not my own. Like Philippians chapter 2 tells us to do. That's the will of the Father is to esteem others higher than yourselves. We've, we've talked about how the, the, the kind of the mission and the purpose of our church is to love God, love people, serve the world. We know that though that is the Father's plan for us. But what do we allow to distract us? It doesn't always have to be something bad. 
It could be something good like people praising Jesus and calling him Messiah. That could have distracted him. But he didn't let it. Because he said, I am about my father's plan. And what I think what we need to learn from verse 25 is that we need to live a life of dying. We need to be constantly dying to our pursuit of comfort at all costs. Dying to our desires. We even need to die to our families. Jesus needs to be supreme. We need to live a life of service because this is what Jesus did. This is why we say love God, love people, and then serve the world. Because it's following the example of Jesus of Nazareth. So what was most important to Jesus at the end of, as the end of his earthly life approached? Fidelity to the scriptures. Being faithful to the scriptures. Seeing them fulfilled. Being obedient to them. Following the Father's plan for his life. Not being distracted. Making sure that he would continue on that path till it was accomplished. And finally, what was most important to him was forgiving sinners. He says, this is the purpose I came to this hour. Now, there's two, two parts of this text here that I believe gives us this insight here. Now, in John's gospel, we have what seems to be kind of like a, an odd um, interruption. In fact, we, we think probably verses 20 through 26 or thereabouts may have actually happened the next day. It may not have been the same day. It could have been the same day of him coming into the city there on the, on the donkey. But we have this kind of interesting insert here that only John records about these Greeks coming to Philip. In verse 20, he says, Now among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida and Galilee, and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, by Greeks, these were Gentiles. These, these, these were uh, uh, not Greek-speaking Jews, which were also called Hellenists. These were Gentile uh, converts here. This would be someone like Cornelius in the book of Acts, or, or, or even the Ethiopian eunuch. But these were people who, that when they came to the feast, they came to worship, and, and Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that people of like this would come often, but there was only a certain point that they get to, they could come to in the temple. They could come to the place where the Gentile court was, and then there was a wall. There was a wall of partition. There was a, a dividing wall, and they had signs on the wall that if a Gentile were to enter into the Jewish area of the temple, that the penalty would be death. Now, if you don't believe that, remember in Acts, or towards the end, when Paul got in prison, the reason why that he was thrown into prison was because he was accused of bringing a Gentile into the Jewish court. So that's why they were seeking to kill him. So the Gentile could only go so far. So these Gentiles, these, they came up to Philip, and maybe it's because Philip had a Greek name which means lover of horses. We don't know why they chose Philip. Maybe they, uh, under, maybe they heard him speak and, and they thought that he sounded more like them with an accent. We don't know, but they approached Philip. And they said an interesting phrase. They said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And I got to admit that often this phrase is burned in my mind as I preach and say, Lord, I say, Jeremy, they want to see Jesus. They want to see Jesus. 
And so this is what their desire was. They wanted to see Jesus. But that word see there has the idea of not just putting their eyes upon them. They didn't want to just get a glimpse of Jesus. The idea there is that they wanted to interview him. They wanted to be close to them. They wanted to know him. They wanted to get to know him better. What's interesting to me is they weren't interested in the disciples, these Greeks. They were interested in Jesus and Jesus alone. They didn't say, Philip, can you tell me what you know about Jesus? They said, we want to know Jesus. Can you introduce me to him? Can you bring him to us? We can't go to him because the wall has separated us. We can't go into the area where he most likely was. Now, what's interesting about this is that John does not record for us whether or not Jesus talks to these people. And the reason why he doesn't is because that's not the point. That's not the reason why it's included here. Jesus' response is the reason why this is so important to us. He says, truly, or excuse me, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. See, there's only one way to get to the Father, and that's through Jesus. John chapter 6 makes that very clear, that no one can come to the Father except he be drawn. John chapter 6, 37, 65. Also John 14, 6. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so this is what the, the truth is on display here. And that, and that when, when people come and they, get in, and they get in close proximity with Jesus, they know that being with Jesus is the only way to the Father. It's the only way to have forgiveness of sins. And this is what was culminating here in this moment. Now, I think it's also interesting that being with Jesus changes people. In Acts chapter 4, uh, in verse 13, we see an interesting account here where, where the, uh, uh, Peter and John, they were, uh, uh, being, they were arrested. This is early on after Jesus' ascension. And so they're, being, uh, they're standing before the, the rulers there. And then it says this, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John... And and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And so the way that, that Peter, and the way that John was answering, and the way that they were living their lives, and the boldness that they had, they were astonished, because they didn't have education, they were just common people. But look what it says here. Luke records for us, it says this, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You see, Jesus changed them. Jesus gave them a boldness that education couldn't give them. Jesus gave them a, 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 a boldness that their, their heritage couldn't give them, their pedigree couldn't give them. It was being with Jesus that was most important in changing their lives. And so I believe that when these people came to Philip, these Greeks, these Gentiles, they could only go so far into the temple. And they saw Philip and they said, we need to see Jesus because he is our hope. He is our answer. He will save us. He will change our lives. Sirs, we wish to see Jesus. The reason why this is so important here is because Jesus then saw this as symbolic. He says, the hour has come. And what does that mean? He says, the hour has come. If you take a study, a survey of the Gospel of John, you will see that this, is, this hour has come up several times. First, it came up in John chapter 2 and verse 4 when Jesus was at the wedding of Cana. And his mother came to him and said, do something here. And he says, what? He says, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter 7, verse 6, he says, My time has not yet come. 
In John chapter 7 and verse 8, he says, I'm not going to this feast, for my time has not fully come. In John chapter 7, verse 30, it says that they were seeking to arrest him, arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, and verse 20, it says no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus was very patient in fulfilling the Father's plan and being faithful to the Scriptures. But now when Jesus saw the Greeks coming to him, he said, my hour's come. Jesus' life, there's, there's great symmetry to this. I've read this in several places. Several people have noted this. When Jesus was born, men from the east came to worship him. When Jesus was about to die, men from the west are coming to worship him. The world was coming to him. That was the purpose, to forgive sinners. And not just the Jews, but everyone. You see, you remember that middle wall of partition that I told you was in the temple? Remember that, that point where the Gentiles could no longer go? That wall was about to be broken down. That veil that, that held, the, the, that divided the holy place from the holy of holies was about to be torn in two. And Jesus knew this and he says, my hour has come where I am going to bring salvation to the world. And that's why he said in verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. No longer was it just the Jews. It was now the entire world and his hour had come where the Jews now and the Gentiles were about to become full brothers in Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus was talking to, excuse me, Paul was talking about in Ephesians when he says he has broken down the middle wall of separation here. You see the beauty that's happening in this text here. This triumphal entry into Jerusalem signifying the exit of his life saying that now my hour has come. It says, I will draw all people to myself. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. Colossians chapter 3 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. This is the hour. This is what was happening when Jesus says, I'm bringing forgiveness. I'm bringing salvation to the world. And my hour has come. The plan is ready to be fulfilled and I am going to be faithful to the scriptures because this is what has been the, the plan from the beginning of time. All of Bible, the, the scriptures is a historical account of God's redemptive plan coming to the culmination right here in John chapter 12. It's an amazing thing to think about. That this is what Jesus was about. So it's so important that sinners be converted. It's so important that all people heard the name of Jesus Christ. Not just one social group or one ethnic group or one tribe or one nation. All people understood the gospel. So the application then needs to be this. How important is it to you that sinners be converted? This was important to Jesus in the last week of his life. That he would bring this plan about. Because this is why he was here. Jesus didn't find his entire satisfaction in the fact that he was going to the Heavenly Father. Although, that was a great desire of his. Jesus also found great satisfaction in bringing people to the Father with him. This is the high priestly prayer of John 17 being played out. Where he said, 
I'm bringing them with you. All those who you've given to me, I have saved and I am bringing them back to you. So as we live our lives here on earth, we need to live in great anticipation of seeing our Heavenly Father. We need to do that. But at the same time, seek to point people to saving grace. People need to see Jesus. People need to have their sins forgiven. The main part of why we are on this earth is to point people to Jesus. We're to bring glory to the Father. This is the reason why we're here. And one of the chiefest ways that we do that is to bring people to Jesus. So, triumphal entry comes into the city knowing that this was the last week of his life. And he put on display what was most important to him. What is most important to you in your life? Is being faithful to the scriptures up there? Be following God's plan? Seeing the God's plan of forgiveness being given to the people, to the masses, to the people all over this world? Those things should be top priorities in our lives. And so as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, this was the beginning of his triumphal exit into heaven. The last week of his life before the crucifixion was focused on his staying true to the Bible, following the Father's plan to the end, and thereby introducing forgiveness of sins to every type of person. So this is what is important to him. And the same themes need to be important to us. So, moving back to James, let us be doers of the word and not hearers only. Let us trust in God's goodness, as we read about in Psalm 118, in his all-powerfulness. And let us point people to Jesus, for they need forgiveness of sins. This is what is important to Jesus. Is it also important to his followers? I pray that it is. Father, the triumphal entry was a great moment in history, and we're thankful for it. But it really clarified all of what Jesus' earthly life was about here. And I pray that we would take those same themes and we would follow our example, follow our brother, follow our Lord, follow our creator, follow our savior and what he has deemed important. I pray that we'd live this out this week. So Father, I'm asking that you would, over the next couple days, bring to our minds passages of scripture that we need to be obedient to. And help us to obey. Father, I pray that we would seek to follow your plan for us. Regardless of the comfort level. Knowing that you are good. Father, I pray that you would instill in us a burning desire. To see people experience the forgiveness of sins. Father, I pray that we would be like Jesus. And it's in his name we do pray. Amen.